Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In your week in IndyCar listener Q&A, that's right, the show driven entirely by you and all of the fine items you send in via Twitter, the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page, and Reddit, the little IndyCar group there. Thanks again to Matt Record for compiling those questions and firing them over. Capturing this on a dark, really cloudy, and rainy Thursday. Thursday? Good Lord, man. I'm not even going to change this. I'm just going to keep it. Uh, Tuesday evening, 5.09 p.m. Just got home a little while ago from one of my ladies, Mrs. Pruitt's all-day-long marathon chemo sessions. So buckling in here. Got about two hours. I'll do my best to get to as many as I can. As always, if you have a question that you really want answered and I don't get to it, send it in again. Sometimes it can take two submissions, three, I think four is the record. Send it in. We will, we, me, I'll get to it. (laughs) Can you tell my brain is not fully cooperating? For those who don't know, my name is Marshall Pruitt. I'm a motor racing reporter. I'm also a writer. I take photographs. I make videos. I also do podcasts. I claim to be professional. For the first two minutes or so of this episode, you'd have serious cause to question that claim. My Week in IndyCar guest episode, try and make that a fairly polished, professional-ish type thing. If you are a new listener to the listener Q&A portion of the Week in IndyCar offerings, well, I don't really go that far to try and make things super polished. So I leave in the vast majority of my mistakes. I can tolerate just about all of them being left in some, which I don't even remember what they are. They just seem like, all right, you actually need to clean that up a little bit. But for the most part, this is just a free floating conversation all driven by your questions, and because my brain has maybe six cylinders, fires on five, you can hear the misfire. There's a broken exhaust header probably as well. Uh, Yeah, I just roll with it, so I hope you enjoy it. If not, I can't blame you, but as always, I do appreciate everything that you all do for me and sending in the questions, and I really do enjoy this. I don't know if I share that enough, but I genuinely enjoy this. The fun that we have as well, continue to get more and more questions that are just off the, off the beaten path. And I enjoy those. They're a blast. They're fun. They make me think instead of just regurgitate things that I know or that I have written. And then there's the straight up questions, the real direct IndyCar related, what's going on here, answer this or that. I enjoy those too. So It's a little bit like a one-sided conversation on a weekly basis that I'm appreciative you show up for. Also need to express my appreciation for the Cooper Tires folks, Chris Pantani, and just so many really good folks there that make this podcast possible. Our live shows this past year, even though I really was not on the road for almost, what, four months or so, uh, pretty much the entire summer was not on the road, did as many live shows as I could on the Cooper Tire stage, 
and some of those were just real gems. I have many of them that were captured, at least in audio form, one or two in video that I need to get rolling out here, probably during December. Also want to thank the Justice Brothers, one of my oldest friends, that family there, going back to the 1998 Indy 500, when myself and the Justice Brothers family did a deal for them to become one of the leading associate sponsors on our general racing Thomas Knapp Motorsports entry. And then torontomotorsports.com. You know them as the fine folks that make t-shirts and stickers and sell memorabilia and hats and whatnot. Yeah, lots of Hinch Tune stuff, lots of James Hinchcliffe content. But, you know, we're doing some fun stuff recently as well with my Robin Miller for president. I'm not sure of what, president of something t-shirt. And also our Joe Tonto quarter retrieval service t-shirt. So lots of fun stuff there to be had. And then finally, Bell Racing Helmets USA. Before we get into your questions and get rocking, definitely need to mention that uh, we've had some not so much fun over the last couple of weeks with drivers, some that are very close to us, like Sebastian Bourdais, uh, all of a sudden on the outside looking in, rather unfathomable. Uh, but yeah, uh, just crazy. So that actually leads off the, it's going to be the opening stint for sure. It's going to be a long stint to open the show because you sent in lots of questions about Seb and what went down there. So we'll get into that. Also, before we get rocking, as we do, thanks to torontomotorsports.com, we go back to last week's Q&A on the little MP podcast Facebook page and look at whose question got the most likes. Why? Well, torontomotorsports.com and this little podcast here, we send you some free stuff just as a way of saying thanks. So, Zachary Bircham, you are the man, you are the winning question, so send me a direct message of some sorts with your email address, and I'll get you linked up with torontomotorsports.com, and you kind of sort of have your pick and cho- choose, choice, choose, picking something of MP Podcast stuff. You want a t-shirt, you want a mug, you want some stickers, you want a whatever, I don't know, Derek Koska, super, super amazing owner of torontomotorsports.com, tends to overserve instead of just putting one thing in the mail tends to be a couple things just because hey thank you thank you all for everything that y'all do to make the show possible so zachary send that in his question regarding spm's dampers for our show guest michael shank last week uh, inquiring about do you have to give back the dampers that he bought from spm do you get to keep them do you then get the andretti autosport dampers is there some kind of intellectual property deal with the transition that, to my vast surprise, got the most likes. So good on you, Zachary. Send me a DM. We'll get you sorted out with some free gear. Last little note before we get rolling. Been urging, if you are fond and have an affinity for Robert Wickens, to check out his new site, Robert Wickens Merch, M-E-R-C-H.com, where you can buy some stuff. And the profits go to him. And since he's no longer a highly paid race car driver, at least during this process where he's fighting to get back, you know, the man needs an income. And so buying a hat, T-shirt, whatever, 
I think there's some baby clothes in there. I mean, which is pretty awesome. If you buy it, even better if you have a baby. Um, you know, it helps Robbie. So would urge you to consider that if it is in your heart to do so. And lastly, our friends at Dinner with Racers have just uncorked a pretty amazing new video podcast, which I think technical terms is referred to as video. Um, (laughs) They've taken a bit of a turn from just pooping out a whole bunch of podcasts like I tend to do. Uh, Instead of doing a batch release of all kinds of podcasts, they have gone the video route. And there's some really compelling stuff in there. There's some animation, Uncle Bobby animation. Just awesome. And true, true friends of my own little show. How so? Why so? Well, Sean and Ryan Eversley had me on the first season of Dinner with Racers. And having recorded that, I'm forgetting it might have been October or so. I don't know, maybe even November, early November of 2015 it's later in december said you know i've been meaning to do a podcast since the late 2000s bought all the stuff for it that stuff has since gotten really old and is no longer vaguely modern or usable but i should get in this and do this and sean was kind enough to say hey whatever you need tell me happily help you educate you with whatever you need And so we spent some time on the phone in December of 2015 and shared some great insights on hosts to consider for the podcast and a variety of other things. So behind the scenes, a little bit maybe unknown, but super, super appreciative. Sean was uh, really the one who got me up to speed on a lot of things, shortened my learning curve so that while it took about five months for me to actually launch the old MP podcast, I did start capturing interviews in January of 2016. And my very first, no, second, my first was with Portia Lamont, winner 2015, Nick Tandy. My second was with IMSA team owner Wayne Taylor. I still have that. It's never been published. And Wayne has asked me not to because I asked a couple questions that he gave great answers to. But about a year later... Knowing that I had yet to put it up, he said, why don't we record that again? And maybe, uh, yeah, let's, let's just do that again. And so, anyways, that means nothing. I don't know why I just shared it, but that's kind of the spirit of the show. I just say things, and hopefully you guys aren't diving for the stop button too soon. Nonetheless, the new Dinner with Racers video series, available on Amazon Prime. So check it out. They're good people. They do good stuff. It's fun and funny. And I'm a big fan of not just friends that do things like this, but people that put out quality motor racing podcasts. So even though this is a video, air quotes, podcast, look, same people, same everything, and they still love themselves some chicken sandwiches. So let's get going. Let's get going here with your questions on the little aggro to start Sebastian Bourdais topic, Mike Jablo. And I should mention here that some of the questions are similar, but I've placed them in some form of order because they do offer different angles to explore. 
And Mike Jablo is the first saying, please provide more insight on Honda's sudden decision to pull support for Sebastian Bordet's car for 2020. Also asks, will Santino Ferrucci's ride still be supported by Honda? Is another question, too, which I'll get to in a moment. So I know that there were some questions as to how this happened. What I understand is this. Honda, and I believe Chevrolet as well, both manufacturers have been on the receiving side of annual budget reductions for a couple of years now across motor racing, more or less in general. Glad you guys are racing. Glad you are doing factory things, but spend less. Don't necessarily do less, but spend less. Last year, last season, for example, and this is it seems small, but it there's definite savings to be had. Honda has sent their hospitality coach to just about every single IndyCar race since, I don't know, forever, 2012 at least. There might have been one or two events where they didn't, but for the most part, it went everywhere. Coming into 2019 and on the back of a budget reduction across HPD, I forget what the number was, like five events? Uh, Whatever the exact number was, it was trimmed significantly. And so it's not just the, well, we're going to save fuel by not sending this large, basically motorhome with a kitchen attached to it. And this is something that has, what, five, six tables in it, invites for all the media, all their drivers. It's a really nice little happening hub of activity. That got cut drastically. And so this is the support staff. These are, again, the cooks, the you name it. Uh, This was just dialed down, a non-necessity. And so while small, it's an area where if you're having to find ways to meet a new and smaller budget, you are taking the things off the table that aren't core, just core items. Well, if you've taken... more or less all the essential, non-essential items out and you are facing another. The rumors are another 10%. Rumors are it's been about 10% per year for a couple years now. There's going to come a point where if you're facing another 10% haircut, and this isn't limited to Honda again, but if you're facing another 10% haircut, which if you stack those up over a couple of years, you know, what, 30% budget reduction? If you're facing yet another 10% slice, there's going to come a point where the only things left to cut really do involve support or the hardcore racing itself. And so there's another question here, which I won't get into up front, but another question on the mechanism for maybe how this happened uh, with Dale Coin Racing. Just say that the overarching answer here mike is budget reduction and if the thing that's allowed you to be a good citizen to try and help some of the teams that are important to you and you have to then start doing a little bit of a sophie's choice and decide which one of your kids you're going to keep and which ones you're going to have to let go would say the answer is there as for santino's ride i 
am not aware of Santino's engine being supported by Honda last year uh, or going forward. Mike also says, and this is something a few other folks have inquired about, with the same-day announcement by Seb that he'll be driving an IMSA in 2020, did he know his IndyCar ride was in jeopardy, and was he already planning to drive sports cars next year? The news, as we know, was delivered to Seb by Dale Coyne, trying to remember, I believe November 5th or so. So this is something he'd known about for a couple of weeks. And as a result, and while this was not public knowledge, uh, this had been floating around as a possibility, but was not necessarily a concrete thing. Uh, Knowing that it appeared his seat at coin was gone and not going to be coming back, uh, Seb did like any professional driver would do and say, great, I'm not just going to sit around and mope. And since this is not a publicly known item, I'm not going to sit and wait for it to become public to then start my search. And so you would assume that beyond calling every IndyCar team to say, hey, do you have anything? I'm, a, I'm free, I'm available. With answers coming back of no, because by early November, really, there's nothing available in IndyCar for a paid professional like Sebastian to step into the next best opportunity to earn an income and remain active was sports cars. And so this is very much a case, Mike, of Seb learning in early November that he would not be in his traditional number 18 Dale Coyne racing Honda with Vassar Sullivan, making calls to see if and what plan B's existed, learning that there were no full-time plan B's anywhere, and saying, great, well, this is what I do. This is how I earn my living. And if the door to IndyCar is closed, at least for now, on a full-time basis, you know what? Uh, I've done a heck of a lot of stuff in sports cars, and I know that my name is one that folks might want to have in IMSA. So here we are with him headed to the JDC Miller Motorsports Cadillac DPI VR full-time with Joao Barbosa. Let's go to... Nathan Cook, who also says, it seems like the time that Seb was without a drive was very short. Was this something he had already been working on or just pure luck? Uh, he also asked, does this mean Hinch has a better chance at landing a Dale Coin seat for next year? I rolled in your question about the time between his learning and announcing that he had a ride. On the subject of even without knowledge of the IndyCar seat, Set to go away, Nathan. Seb, along with a pretty decent number of IndyCar drivers, are always on the lookout for sports car opportunities for the four long races each year. Rolex 24 Daytona, Mobile 1, 12 hours of Sebring, Salins, 6 hours at the Glen, Watkins Glen, and the finale, Petit Le Mans, the Motul Petit Le Mans at Road Atlanta. So, yes, absolutely there was benefit here for Seb being a guy who's been in IMSA for years and years, been around, won some major races as well. Uh, prior to that in Grand Am, was in Grand Am, but uh, this is select races, stepping in a couple times between his full-time IndyCar opportunity, so it's natural for him to be discussing with folks about what kind 
of seats he might be able to find at the longer races, and lo and behold, needed to transition that conversation into, so what if we did the endurance races plus all the ones in between? So good that this is not something where he'd only done IndyCar and had to try and see who might be interested in IMSA. Very fortunate that he was already working on things, as he has been and has done for many years. On the sports car side, to the primary question here, the new one that's adding in Nathan on also, does this mean Hinch has a better chance at landing a Dale Coyne seat for next year? I asked that question to his manager right away. Once all this was confirmed privately uh, that Seb was out at Coyne, and Hinch's manager said, it's not us. And I have a pretty solid idea of two names of who it might be. So I'm not going to go into that because I haven't written about that yet, Nathan. But I do believe we are going to see a driver who, if it's one of the two that I think is pretty close, uh, I think that driver is going to be pretty good. Bourdais good? Eh, Not necessarily. But maybe not the old school Dale Coyne racing does this guy's mother even know he exists type obscure person from the Albanian Formula 4 championship. Uh, Someone that has won races within the heck this year and been successful uh, in in other open wheel series or two interesting note though looking at where this is headed just sprinkle this in i mean dale spends a lot of money each year to support his indycar team not just the second entry for most recently santino but before that again there's been ed jones and a number of other young drivers that have been in the seat there but also uh, Sebastian's car. And despite the Vassar-Sullivan contributions, the seal master on the car, uh, that is not a, a, quote, primary dollar sponsor. That's not a, a sponsor that's kicking in the full budget. It's helpful in its contribution, but it's not a giant problem solver in terms of how much is being spent. So, Dale has been spending his own money for both entries. If you reduce the Honda engine lease, which is, I'll try and find out exactly what it is for next year, but million dollars, 1.2 million is I think what it was last year, but round about a million dollars. If that number is the difference between Seb being in and out, that would disappoint me massively for this reason if you've learned on november 5th that the engine that you'd been receiving is no longer free and the season opener is what middle-ish beginning or so of march you're talking three months to have the full budget in place if you're considering the fact that you don't necessarily need the full budget in hand on let's just say march 5th in theory and there's probably some things i don't understand about this but in theory there was no immediate need to jettison sebastian 
if there was a true willingness and desire to continue in the face of a new million-ish dollar hole in the budget, again, maybe there's another hole in the budget we don't know about. Seems to me that making this decision early in November might not have displayed the faith I thought would have been present for someone who has really helped make Dale Coin Racing a threat at almost every track we go to. And I don't know if we've ever been able to say that about the team. So there's something there that doesn't really made a lot of sense to me, Nathan. So will we find out who is driving soon? I hope. Uh, when Dale called, generally about 30 seconds after the story, my story went up, I said, so how close are you to signing Sebastian's replacement? And he said, nowhere. He says, I don't have anyone right now, but we're searching. So you want to assume the best that that is true and accurate. Just don't really know. Again, uh, there's something a little off here, and I've yet to figure out exactly what it is. Ray Schumann, your question says, okay, Honda pull support for, from Bordeaux. Since money abhors a vacuum, it has to go somewhere. So then the hinge to coin announcement is imminent, right? Well, again, I'll just overstate the obvious here. It was Honda pulling its support for coin. Another quick note, yes, money does abhor a vacuum. So it doesn't mean it has to go externally. Uh, To everything that I know, it just means the money has gone internally. That instead of it going out, it's staying in place to satisfy that uh, budget reduction that I mentioned. Also, on the hinge to coin announcement, I mean, it sure would make sense. <laughs> um, if you want a veteran who might be able to bring some money, that seems like not a bad option. Throw in another quick item here. When the KV racing team shut down at the end of 2016, we had a situation where Sebastian brought with him Vassar and Sullivan, his race engineer, Olivier Boisson, who's become his damper technician and assistant engineer type big brain, you name it, supporting Craig Hampson, who was Sebastian's race engineer at Newman Haas, where he won four races also worked with him a little bit in the past at dragon racing and whatnot, but kind of got the band back together. Also working with his Newman Haas crew chief, Todd Phillips. I mean, this is right. Amazing and great. So with Sebastian no longer there, will Craig stay? Will some of the other teams that were very interested in his services now do their best to see if he can be had? I'd say McLaren would be the number one team on that list. Mentioned before in the podcast, I do know for a fact that they inquired about his services in the formation of Aero McLaren SP, a.k.a. Spam. With Sebastian no longer there, and the driver who, again, Craig came to this small team to be with to try and rekindle their glory with him gone, Uh, Is that something that Craig would want to look to stay or maybe try something new with a different team? 
Big questions. So this is where the Hinchcliffe angle comes in because James, in his rookie year in 2011 with Newman Haas, had Craig Hampson as his race engineer. When he moved to Andretti Autosport in 2012, he moved there, but in 2013, he won three of the six races he has captured in IndyCar, and that was with Craig Hampson as his race engineer. So while his manager says, no, we're not headed to coin, as I've mentioned here before, when Sebastian was the primary driver and the second seat was more in question, still definitely a place that would seem like a wonderful place for Hinch to try and land in the second seat, knowing that although Olivier would be his race engineer, that Hampton guy, there's just some good juju between himself and Hinch. So, boy, provided Craig stays, uh, some driver is going to have a pretty phenomenal opportunity in front of him or her. Let's go to Justin Brockwell, who says, where do we get to line up? Where do we go? Where do we get to line up to say bad, 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 bad things about Dale? The check clears coin. Sorry, mouth, face, words, talk, good, not. Yeah, I'm going to write about this, and I've said this before, so it's not exactly brand new, but this is the really frustrating part, Justin. I And I need to qualify things by saying I am a massive fan of Dale Coyne. He is the last of the old school team owners who spends his own money to go racing. I realize that if you talk to most team owners, they'll tell you that they put in some of their own money in some way or have recently. Dale's truly digging in deep into his pocket, taking profits from the businesses that he owns or the ones that he's sold. I've heard that he's sold some Sonny's barbecues and is just renting uh, those properties and actually doing pretty darn well doing that. So regardless, massive respect for Dale for being someone who, if he used some of the other kind of smaller business smaller team owners models would be out of the sport. If you aren't paying for the whole thing, I'm not putting a car in the grid. Dale's been the guy who's been willing to subsidize a fairly decent amount of his team for a long enough period uh, over the last couple of years to really change his reputation. We know beforehand, of course, it was truly Dale, the check, Dale quote, the check clears coin the Francesco Draconis of the world, (laughs) right? But again, there's been a bit of an image rehab. Dale has said, you know, I'd rather work harder with my businesses to earn more profits so I can put those into my IndyCar team and have better results. Love the sound of that. Just, again, truly love the sound of that. What we have here on the surface is a bit of a return to this, we're going to pay for things out of the pocket of those that drive for us. And that does strip, that does truly strip the layer of quality that paying a driver happens to bring. So this is a step back. 
So if you want to say bad things, well, that might be the first spot. This is the thing that frustrates me the most, Justin. When Chip Ganassi Racing was looking to downsize at the end of 2017, wanted to go from four cars down to two, wanted to get rid of the entries for Charlie Kimball, Max Chilton, really focus on being the best two-car team they could be, they went to Dale. Or let me rephrase that. They went to Dale. Sebastian went to CGR. I don't know exactly who spoke to who first, but I do know that there was a genuine inquiry. Hi, we would like to hire Sebastian Bourdais to be in the number 10 car next to Scott Dixon, who he knows well now, not just from competing against an IndyCar, but as teammates in the Ford Chip Ganassi GT program. That was shot down. Dale said no. And so in 2018, they hired Brendan Hartley first. He got bought out, contract was taken, and went to the Toro Rosso F1 team. Ed Jones, former Ganassi driver, ended up stepping into the number 10. That didn't work out very well. What happened again in 2018, looking towards 2019? Another inquiry. Hey, so this Bourdais guy that you wouldn't let us have last year, we'd really like to have him for next year. Big no. Denied. And so that seat went to Felix Rosenquist. Good on Felix. Amazing year. So happy that he's here. But nonetheless, you need to know that on two occasions, one of the big three teams said, hi, we'd really like that guy. Can we hire him? Dale said no. Thing that I revealed in the story about Sebastian getting the boot from Coin was the fact that about three months ago, while the Aero McLaren SP team was being put together, the McLaren side said, hey, Sebastian Bourdais, we really covet this guy. We'd like him to be our team leader. What do you think about a straight-up contract swap? We get Seb, you get James Hinchcliffe, everybody's happy. Well, third time in three seasons, Dale Coyne said no. Three months after turning that down, Right, We obviously know that Pato Award was signed to be the, quote, team leader, the veteran with all seven races, alongside Oliver Askew. But we know that three significant inquiries to have Sebastian drive for bigger teams turned down by Dale. Frustration here, Justin simply as a friend of Sebastian's, is knowing that when something that would have benefited Sebastian was presented, Dale said no. The moment some financial adversity that on the surface does not look like a showstopper by any means was presented to Dale, he did what was yet again in his best interest. And instead of saying no... You all can't have Sebastian. He said, you know what? Y'all can have him. He's out. He's gone. So when he was wanted, he said no. When things got a little bit tough financially, 
I realized the timing of being informed that the free engine that was being used in the number 18 car was inopportune. But you also have to realize that three months after he could have been the team leader at McLaren, after that seat was taken formally, what, a week before? I don't know. Again, I'm maybe getting lost in the timeline a little bit, but a month ago, whatever it was, is pretty close on the things getting done with Pato and Sebastian learning he no longer had a seat. That's a frustrating part for me, Justin. Three times. Turn down. The minute things got a little bit too tight, you're out. By the way, there's no opportunities for you in the series. Oh, that one, that's one that Dale needs to own. Let's go to John Hull. And this is part of what I saved from Mike's opening question. Says I read an article from Jenna Fryer this week that mentioned one of the main reasons why our French fry lost his ride is because of Honda pulling any financial support that may have been giving to his entry. The reason provided from Honda was based on a lack of manufacturer points he received this year, which is none. This seems like a counterintuitive answer given the lack of financial support this team has received from Honda in the past. How's this? Whether that was or was not provided as the official answer, it's not for me to say. It's for whether Honda had and has the option to spend money and or not ask for money for that engine lease, which means they would be coming out of pocket to provide it. That does exist. So I would say that as we've seen many times with manufacturers that support teams in a variety of ways, there are always options. If you want to do something, if they want to do something, usually we'll find a way to make it happen. I know that we've discussed a rumored 10% budget cut, uh, one that we've heard about happening year after year recently, and that being the main cause behind the need to trim Coins, free motor for one of its entries. I do not doubt that being 100% accurate. So if the mechanism for explaining it and the reasoning came back to manufacture points and so on and so forth, okay. But that is using a description that maybe doesn't call out the underlying issue here. If this was truly a situation where there was no budget reduction in place and the number 18 did not deliver manufacturer points. Do I think that Sebastian would be out of a ride because coin would have had that free motor taken? No, I absolutely do not. So I would say at the, the top of this pyramid, John, it's simply a case of budget cuts hitting one of its smallest teams, which is not something they think is going to factor into their overall championship puzzle in 2020. But if the money was there, do I think they would have taken it? No, I don't think they would have taken that motor away. John also says, two questions. You foresee less money being spent in the series by Honda and Chevy, given that the auto industry is now declining. 
Also, are there any chances for Board A to come back for at least the Indy 500 or one-off races? I don't know if I'd say the auto industry is declining. I'd say that it's changing for sure, changing massively. I do believe, John, we're going to see less money being provisioned for traditional motor racing adventures, but I'm not sure what that's going to change and become. This is a much longer discussion for another day. It's also the subject of an article I've started. Very concerned about Honda and Chevy on the IndyCar side. Heck, both of them on the IMSA side and other manufacturers. And what it is they want and need to remain in factory motor racing involvements in the future. I think some of the things that have been announced by IndyCar and by IMSA These are new formulas we're going to do, set in stone. Do I think some of those things are going to get walked back fairly soon? Because the auto industry is indeed changing much faster than anyone expected. Technologies, both present and what's being worked on in the future, changing so quickly that it's rather hard to say, ah, in a few years we're going to go to this New technology, new technology to us, not to the auto industry, but for our sport. I think that might be the biggest challenge here. Our manufacturers might have said a year ago, six months ago, yeah, sure, let's do that. And in a very short amount of time, might be coming back going, yeah, by the way, actually, boy, that target's off. We don't want to do that because internally we've decided we're going in this different direction. So rather than wait a year or two for some new hybrid or whatever thing to come, yeah, that, that's actually way off target. It was when you asked. It was when we said, yeah, but things have changed. I think, I think, I have a pretty strong inkling here, John, that IndyCar and IMSA might be getting some new and pretty loud messages from some of its manufacturers, if not all of its manufacturers, at the very top tier to what they want or don't want with this next engine formula. As for Seb coming back, I know that I shared his contact information with one team. Obviously not going to say who. Uh, That's between them. Can't tell you if anything will come of it. Hope so, but have to see. Let's go to Ed Haynes, who asked about Will Seb leaving coin have any effect on Craig Craig Hampson's status? We already discussed that a little bit. And he also said, this is a part I like, man, those two in the third Ray Hall car. Well, I'd love to see that too, Ed. And as soon as I get an extra $6 million, well, first of all, I'm going to keep a million of it because we kind of need it to pay our bills at home. But um, I'll send at least five over to Bob, and hopefully that'll cover Seb and Craig for a year. Actually, that'd be the dumbest thing I could ever do with that kind of money. But nonetheless, as Bob told us here a couple weeks ago, the clock has more or less run out on running a third full-time entry for next season. So unless something changes drastically in a very short amount of time, a lot of money shows up, and a readily available crew shows up, sounds like Bob expects him just to be two full-time entries next year. So I intentionally dropped in a little break in the Bourdais questions because, you know, we need a break. This comes from our pal Lance Snyder. 
usually injects some fun and humor into each episode. Lance says, you're hosting Thanksgiving dinner. Which bitter rivals do you invite, and how would you keep the peace? My first thought, Lance, is I wouldn't want to keep the peace, right? Thanksgiving's not about peace today. I realize that the originations of it, yes. Today, no. It's an American tradition where you show up and just hate eat with the family. And you get to hear, you know, really racist theories from people you only see once or twice a year. And you get to hear really crazy, wackadoo political beliefs. And you get to hear conspiracy theories. And, hey, Epstein, he was secretly murdered by the Clintons. Sure! I mean, you know, all fueled by alcohol, which messes with the head. You throw in some traditional turkey, if that's how you like to get down. That's trying to put you to sleep, so your body's just totally at odds. Trying to snore, but you kind of want to punch people or laugh or cry, thanks to lots of alcohol. There's sports, right? There's football. So some of us like to, you know, get tanked up, belly full of Thanksgiving turkey and Lord knows what other kind of things you glop on top of it and whatever else. Then go out in the backyard or the local park or whatever and break a few bones, you know, uh, unskilled football with the family. I mean, it's a, it's an American tradition as well, right? So you show up in the ER with parts of you that weren't broken, that are now broken, uh, bleeding, whatever gaudy sweater you're wearing probably not wearable again and you're drunk and you're sleepy i mean that's that's what i would consider to be normal thanksgiving first of all lance and so throwing into that i see three three bitter rivals tony george robin miller anthony joseph Floyd. what's interesting here is among the three two are friends in each way. Robin and AJ. AJ and Tony. Tony and AJ. Not Robin and Tony. Not Tony and Robin. So there'd be, see? And then keeping in mind that AJ has smacked Robin before, there's certainly the potential for that. Could you imagine AJ carving that turkey? Miller just saying some deplorable thing and aj just taking that large carving knife and stabbing it right into his hand on the table like every kind of bad gangster movie i mean it's there the potential's there lance i love that tony i'm not sure i'm not sure where he's at in life i get a fee i get the feeling he might be crying a lot based on the announcement of the sale of ims and indycar I, there'd be a lot of tears. And so that alcohol, whoo, yes, there'd be, that would be a dinner sponsored by Kleenex. There'd be a lot of tears getting mopped up there. I think AJ would browbeat him. Son, toughen up. You, what's wrong with you, you wimp? Miller would be cackling and laughing despite having his hand stabbed and stuck to the table. Uh, he'd be threatening AJ, even with that hand stuck there. He could still probably position around the table and, and Avoid getting clobbered with a big turkey leg over the head. I, man, 
this is something I want to sign up right now to film. So great question, Lance, and great little palate cleanser in the Sebastian Bourdais opening series of questions. Let's go to Jim Johnstone, our friend, our listener, who coined the acronym SPAM. Says, Marshall, do you have any idea how much funding deficit at DCR uh, it was that caused the separation with Seb? Is there any chance that Seb has chosen to start looking away from IndyCar, considering his age and what seems to be a lack of fire for ovals? Is there any chance that the partial funding that Hinch has would be enough to fill the gap? Uh, so covered some of those things. He said, also for the IndyCar movie that I discussed and tried to cast at one listener's request, he says, I think got it wrong with The Rock is Tony Kanaan. It's got to be Jason Statham. I got to disagree with you, Jim. I mean, Jason Statham is who Max Chilton would actually pay to have cast as him. That's, I think that's the dream, that kind of tough guy thing. Um, Jim also says, this is what I described the uh, listener Q&A show as. He says, one last thing for the record. I quite enjoy the, quote, unpolished turd format for your weekend in IndyCar. Don't ever change. Well, thanks, Jim. I know that at least one person enjoys this unpolished turd. Uh, so I mentioned the roughly million dollars there. What I don't know is are they facing a bigger deficit? I called Sully, James Sully Sullivan, half of the Vassar Sullivan co try entry for the car and got sent to voicemail on my very first ring. And Sully's usually pretty good about answering if he can or calling back if he's unavailable. He has not, which although I can call him again and again, uh, the fact that he didn't text back as well to say, Hey, sorry, busy or Hey, can't talk leads me to believe he doesn't want to talk. So I don't know if there's a, additional deficit jim on the sponsorship side not just the free motor side so yeah interesting there as for seb having a lack of fire for ovals i wouldn't necessarily say that at the places where the danger is seemingly higher than it should be we've definitely heard him say yeah this this is a little nuts but i wouldn't say he does not enjoy oval racing I mean, that guy tries as hard as anybody. That fiery bone-breaking crash in qualifying at Indy in 2017, that was the kind of stuff that comes from someone who is feeling it and willing to push into pretty far extremes. We know afterwards he said, well, maybe I went a little bit too far. But, yeah, uh, he's also extremely good on ovals. That gateway crash of his, you know, if not for that season, looks a lot better. Um, but he does have a really solid aptitude for ovals, so wouldn't necessarily write him out, write him off there. Um, the th- question about Hinch and enough to fill that gap, that is something where, again, I don't know how much money Hinch has, but provided it's not a whole lot more than a Honda engine lease, it certainly might make sense. Thomas Gross, a related question here, says, what else is going on at Dale Coin Racing? Why does a fully funded car suddenly need funding? Did they lose Sealmaster? says, I understand you always want more funding, but to cancel the contract of a driver seems to take it to another level. I just, 
I wanted to throw that question in, and thanks for sending it, Thomas, because it just, to me, it really codifies where we're at. Yeah, this this is not normal. This offseason hasn't been normal. I get that. So, obvious statement alert. I should put a dollar in the fine jar here. But, yeah, there's just something weird. Uh, I'm going to hopefully find out a little bit more in the coming weeks because you don't just cut a guy when that happens right away. You work to find options if you truly want to. Going to throw in another little palate cleanser here before we get to kind of sort of the final board day questions and get into a bunch of other ones. It comes from our man Josh Shimizu. Thanks, Josh. It says, I've often thought if A.J. Foyt were able to coax Brian Barnhart to his team, it would most likely go a long way towards restoring a measure of success to the team. Uh, what would have to happen for something like this to take place? Hmm... I would say significant internal change, Josh. I'm hearing more and more. Doesn't mean I'm hearing the accurate thing. I'm just hearing it more and more that the ways and policies of the team, how they do things, the decision-making tree who says we should do this, we should do that, and whose opinion is not just valued, but also acted upon. It's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit skewed from what you might think. And so it leads me to believe that if a Brian Barnhart, what president of Harding Steinbrenner Racing, who did a heck of a job, if you were to come to AJ Foyt Racing, would that mean the making the most out of the least as the Harding Steinbrenner team did would just become reality at AJ Foyt Racing? Absolutely not. They already have a rather amazing new hire within the last year, that being Scott Harner. He is just a badass. So good so trusted, so everything. He is someone who truly has the respect of everyone in the paddock. Talking about people that would want to come work for the team, I've mentioned this many times before. That is something that Harner can do, will do, would do, if allowed. Could definitely help change the team's practices. It's internal structure. Who does what and where and how? And Applying a blueprint that has worked for Ganassi so well for so long. That's where he's coming from. This is what he knows. As I hear more and more, this is not something the Foyt team is really cottoning on to. And I don't believe it has anything to do with Harner. I just think that they've been doing things a certain way for decades before Larry Foyt was there in a, a team president, team manager, whatever the official title is, role. It's been a certain reporting structure, certain decision-making structure, AJ at the top, and I believe, Josh, you could hire a Brian Barnhart. You could hire a Tim Sendrick, a Mike Hole, a you name it. I mean, you could hire all kinds of amazing thing. 
things. If you are not willing to let those people do what they are best at doing, to let them remodel the team, how it performs, how it acts, who works for it, who's in what position, etc. If you're not willing to let those things happen, it doesn't really matter who you bring on board, man. So that's why as much as I love me some Brian Barnhart, not a statement I ever really predicted, I would say uh, even five years ago, but nonetheless, really huge respect to Brian and all that he has done in recent years with the Harding Steinbrenner team. I think until AJ decides he is going to hand over the hand over the wheel, he is going to let someone steer the ship in the way that they say needs to happen, independent of his opinion or input. Truly say, okay, this team is going nowhere. I need to try and experiment and let someone else truly do it without me being putting the hand on the wheel again to kind of lean it back to where I want it to be. If and when that happens, Josh, if and when Larry Foyt wants to push and fight and say, hey, boy, we do have some really talented people here or there and going to let them make this a more modern and hopefully, therefore, successful team. It's hard for me to say why anything would change. Let's go to Cal Reese. It says, with the announcement of Seb driving in the IMSA DPI sports car series with JDC Miller, does it leave Seb any room to drive with another IndyCar team in 2020? And that's another thing, too, is looking at the calendar... That's why I wanted to use this question, separate from an earlier one on sports cars. Uh, There's not a lot of conflict. So opportunities, I would say, are certainly there. We are expecting, and I'm maybe answering a question a little early. I know there's one formally that comes up here in a little bit on Connor Daly's situation. I fully expect Connor to be confirmed not in a full-time capacity in IndyCar, but in one where the vast majority of his time is occupied driving an IndyCar. And since we expect that to happen, know that's going to happen, that would, Cal, take IndyCar's number one super sub out of rotation. And so provided Connor, the guy who seemingly always gets the call when a team is in need, which is great for him and speaks really highly of him with daily out of that role. Finally, thankfully, I think that might move Seb to the top of the list. I mean, Hinch is certainly one provided, you know, I know they're working on trying to make something happen until we find out what that is. We do know that Seb has a full-time deal in IMSA. I do not believe the JDC Miller Motorsports team will stand in his way to go and step in and be a super sub if need be in IndyCar. And so I think just because this is how things have gone for many, many years now, where a driver gets injured, the whatever thing happens, and they're out for a race or a couple or who knows, I'm fairly confident Seb will be driving for someone in IndyCar, if not more than one team next year, based on need. 
And wouldn't that be a pretty interesting scenario for him? Maybe driving for a team that never got a chance to get a feel for him. You know, just it came to mind, so who knows? But you know, maybe one of the Andretti Autosport drivers has <laughs> eats some tainted meat <laughs> two days before the, I don't know, let's say the mid-Ohio race and has got the bubonic booty plague and is going to have to spend the next five days sitting on a toilet. Well, guess what? Sebastian Bourdais in a freaking Andretti Autosport Honda? I mean, that sounds pretty spectacular at Mid-Ohio, doesn't it? Or whatever. Carlin Racing. Got a driver who fell off their bicycle in training and their elbow is blown up and they're going to be out of the car for a month. Well, that sure would make Carlin a lot better, having the best driver it's ever had in its IndyCar seat. So I know these things are not optimal by any means, Cal. And I know that Seb would definitely love to have a full-time seat with a quality team and just it's not even a question, not even a topic for discussion. But knowing how IndyCar tends to highlight the need for a driver in a couple of fill-in roles a couple times per year, and with Connor expected to no longer be that guy who's available to do so, I think that comes back and benefits Seb. Jerry Suddeth, hey Jerry, says, if this is indeed the end of Sebastian's full-time open-wheel career, could you give us a brief retrospective and give us an idea where he raced both in his era and all time? Oh, that's an uncomfortable one, right? It's fun talking about friends and where they fit. Um, I think, Seb, if we look back at his champ car titles four in a row i mean keep in mind who he was competing against right if you think about yeah a lot of the best kart teams had moved over to what was the indy racing league then became the indycar series but if you look at the teams that he had to face in champ car it's not as if it was a total total cakewalk for him not saying it was as tough as, you know, heyday of cart, but I'm definitely saying that that Forsyth team, that player's Forsyth operation, yeah, that was no joke. That was truly no joke. Just a titan of the sport. So if you look at his ability to win four championships in a row, with Newman Haas going up against players, Forsyth, well, that's a pretty big deal. I realize that the drivers fluctuated a bit, so not every team was amazing and awesome, but Walker Racing was pretty darn strong at certain times. You know, the Roo Sport team, that was pretty strong at certain times. The PKV, you know, there were, there were some pretty good teams. Not Monsters. Again, I realize that the herd was a little thin at times with some of those titles. But I do love the fact that Seb came over brand new to everything. Figured out the series, figured out the cars, just you know, absolutely thrive. Team Australia is another one that came to mind, comes to mind. Um, this is someone who came here was unfazed by the big power, big everything, the higher weight, all these new tracks, lots of street courses, 
lots of street courses, even a little bit of oval racing that Champ Car was doing. He figured that stuff out pretty quickly. I'd say whatever you think of Paul Tracy and where he fits among the all-time greats, keep in mind that for four years in a row, he knocked that guy down title-wise. That's hard to ignore. A.J. Allmendinger as well when he finally got to players. I realize that he was with another team with Roosport for the first half of the season or whatever it was. But yeah, I would say Seb's Seb is right up there. Really, truly up there. The consistency to do that four years in a row as well. That's something that's really on a, on almost a different level, Jerry, because as, (laughs) as I see and have seen at home here with my local golden state warriors, able to win three NBA titles in five years while they were just ravaged by injuries in this most recent championship run. They all admitted, boy, the hardest part was keeping our head in the game and not letting the pressure of going for yet another title, even when we're expected to do so, to not let that weigh us down. So I'd say Seb's mental fortitude, certainly an aspect of his greatness that is maybe underreported or undervalued. Another thing I'll throw in, which is a trait of the all-time greats, is his versatility. Don't just mean, I know you've asked where he fits in IndyCar, but keep in mind that Scott Dixon's versatility to jump in and out of an IndyCar or sports car win the biggest possible races in both going from open wheel to a GT car or a prototype and back and up and down and you name it, uh, just so seamless, part of what makes him one of the all-time greats. We know Mario Andretti has driven everything, won and everything. A.J. Foyt, yet another. The fact that Bourdais can drive anything as my phone goes ding-ding because I forgot to turn off the ringer. Reason Seb is so great and so able is because no matter what it is, the guy can drive it and go to the front. Another aspect of this as well is, well, that versatility also plays out right in driving an Indy car. So while he might've struggled a bit in 2019 with some tires that just did not front tires in particular, that did not jive with him. This is someone who from an adaptability standpoint Never really questioned. Wherever he finished in the race, you could say, man, this guy gave it 100% and overcame whatever it was to the best of his ability, which was often more than many others. Last thing that comes to mind, Jerry, to close, is while Seb drove for the big Newman Haas team, also has driven for a number of smaller teams. Dragon comes to mind. Dale Coyne, partial season in 2011 when they were, you know, back when they was Dale Coyne racing, right? Not the modern version where you expect them to win at least one race per year, but the team that really was not expected to do anything. Um, The Dragon team as well. Uh, He's driven for a number of teams. KV when it wasn't necessarily a raging success. This guy is someone who's come into a lot of teams that were either small tail end or midfield, but really didn't have much reason to believe they could be more and made them a lot more. And it wasn't just from driving the car. It was 
institutional knowledge. This is how to do things better. You do this that way. Why do you do that? That's stupid. And in a very blunt way, uh, the Ganassi team talks about being a little bit pissed off when he did his first test for them in the Ford GT. Some folks really had their feathers ruffled. Wow, this guy is just a jerk. No. Well, yeah, but no. All this guy cares about is winning and making the car better. He's not here to make you happy. He's here to do all that he can to improve the team if it needs improving, or if there's nothing there, then just the car. But if he sees methods, ways of thinking, practices, you name it, that just don't jive with what he knows, uh, works as the best way to do things, that's why we've seen him make a lot of smaller teams where you go, wow, they, they were in the race. Last year with some other driver, we didn't even know they existed. So there's another element as well. And a really interesting IndyCar career, Jerry, where got to give the man credit, not just those four titles, not just all those wins, but also how he helped truly transform a lot of race teams into something that's bigger and better than they were before he showed up. Let's go to J.R. Riggs. You're one of many people that asked this, J.R., and I appreciate it. He said, what will become of the hamburger and french fry show? Have we seen the last episode of The Greatest Thing on YouTube? Oh, come on. The cat videos are the best. Or will it be replaced by Simon Pagano with new frog legs and chicken wing show? This is praying for you and your wife. Thank you, JR. So Seb and I did our very first hamburger and french fry show. Well, we had no idea it was going to become the hamburger and french fry show at the roar before the 24 test on, I don't know what it would have been, uh, January 5th or 6th or something, 2018. So the very first episode was actually done at an IMSA event. And we did some more after that at the Rolex 24 and, we did more, and so it became an IndyCar thing by and large, but it actually got its start at IMSA. So, yeah, it's going to continue. Whenever I'm at an IMSA race, well, we're going to do hamburger and french fry, wrap-up, end-of-day videos, and hopefully give those cat videos a run for their money on YouTube with Racer and Racer.com. Uh, what I don't know... And I've been thinking about it, not a lot, but a little bit. This is a part where I throw out the, I need your input from everybody. Who should we invite? Should we have a little casting call for the next Sebastian Bourdais? Uh, not a reality show. We're not going to do a, who's going to win the thing to do the thing. Because trust me, standing next to me doing end of day videos it's not a prize. It's not something that would be considered a win by any stretch. But I don't know. Should we do a little, you know, test run here? Some different folks. Part of me thinks Pagano would actually be a lot of fun. Some of you might immediately react and go, Pruitt, what's your thing with French people? Well, coincidentally, I've been friends with Simon for a long time. Uh, what, 11 years now? Yeah, and, you know, real friends, not just see at the track friends, but real friends. So there's some chemistry there. He's French. That's amusing in and of itself. We've learned that. Sebastian has proven that. He's highly technical, right? He knows his race cars. He knows his engineering. He can give us some pretty deep insights, which that's one of the things that Sebastian did. I don't know how honest he would be, though. That's the thing that I believe was Sebastian's absolute 
gold on the IndyCar front was whether it was positive, whether it was negative, if he was feeling super confident, if he was shaken. He did not hide any of that. I don't know if Simon has that in him publicly. Privately, yes. Publicly, I don't know. Part of me wonders if Joseph Newgarden would be a lot of fun. I mean, he's got a big personality. Um, I don't know how serious I could get him to be. So that's that's the thing, the versatility. Coming back to Sebastian's versatility, Jerry. The fact that Seb would be whatever it is the situation demanded, just naturally. Um, that's the thing I think that if we're going to do the hamburger and whatever show, continue that in IndyCar, we need to think about someone who would want to do it, so they have to have bad judgment, has the personality, has the honesty, and since it's not a paid thing, right? There's no money in this. Come on. Uh, they would have to have a willingness to commit, right? Hey, I know that you might want to go and do your debrief five minutes sooner, uh, or you might want to go do whatever. But look, if we're going to do this, then let's do it. Not when it suits you, when you're in the mood. Even when Sebastian had a bad day and the car was slow, confused him, he had a crash, whatever it is. He'd still show up. And, you know, so just super respect to him for that. This is why it's not necessarily easy, JR, and all the others who asked whether we'll continue the show. Of course, Seb and I are going to do it whenever we're together at whatever track. But if we're talking IndyCar, knowing that we don't expect him to be full time with anybody, who should we reach out to? Uh, Felix Rosenquist is someone else that came to mind. He might be a lot of fun. Colton Hurd is another one that came to mind. And, you know, this kid's a little truth cannon in training as well. He says absolutely what he thinks. And at least for some of the live shows that we did, some of the live podcasts that he took part in, he was most disappointed when some of the other guests did an awful lot of talking and didn't let him or give him enough room to just kind of be himself and let it flow. So part of me thinks Colton Herta might be as close to a, a perfect stand-in for Seb because there's I'm still harboring a hope he'll be back full-time in 2021. So could it be a hamburger and taco show? I don't know. Give me your thoughts. I know all these knuckleheads, and I can certainly ask any and all of them, Uh, I think most of them would rightfully say no because they're smart people and they have pride in themselves. But nonetheless, give me some thoughts. Do you think Pagano could be it? Do you think Rosenquist? Do you think I might be onto something with Colton or someone else? Rosenquist again? I don't know. I mean, I'm open to any suggestion. We'll go from there. Uh, Let's go to Jordan Darwin. All right. We're kind of getting out of the Bourdais thing. Says any bizarre rumors from IndyCar 2019 that never happened that you can now disclose? Huh. No, not really. And the reason being, Jordan, is I can't remember any of them that might have happened, could have happened, something or other. I mean, granted, there were some rumors that I'm still failing to remember of, oh, this person's definitely going here or there, and it didn't happen. 
would say the one that did happen, and I'm glad I could finally mention because I didn't have a real reason to just throw it out there, was the proposed Hinch and Bourdais swap. That's one that was just kind of a meaty, like, wow, we don't really hear about that in IndyCar or, frankly, any real sports uh, that involve motor racing. Just a straight up, we're going to trade your guy for our guy, and off we go. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that that bizarre one was actually able to share that publicly. Um, there's still a couple things going on right now that if they don't happen, we'll certainly, uh, how's this? If you don't read any strange stories or things that come out of left field between now and the end of the year, Jordan, throw this one back in and I'll answer it. And hopefully that'll prompt me to remember to speak about a couple things that are bouncing around in my head right now. Uh, there's one team thing that could happen that I find really fascinating and it'd be totally, it would catch people way off, way off guard, but it's not like a huge thing, but it's something where you go, Oh, huh. All right. Well, that's that, oh. never, never would have expected that. Still a driver thing or two with some teams that could happen that, Right now, if they do happen, I think they would make for a lot of folks offering comments in the racer.com comment section that would be somewhere between, huh, who, and what? Possibly a why thrown in after a, when are we going back to Milwaukee or Cleveland? Um, let's go to Chuck Knob. Says, no question, just comment. Keep up the great work. Sick of the one step forward, three steps back cycle for IndyCar. This offseason, with the captain now being in charge, it's great news for IndyCar, but the spam soap opera, the Spencer Piggott saga at ECR, and now Seb losing his ride. Well, I know this isn't new. It does curtail the momentum that we had coming off the 2019 season. Yeah, man, again, can't argue. It's, boy, this has definitely dampened the old parade for sure. Andy Bauer. It's a little bit in the Bourdais region here, but uh, not totally. That's why I liked it. It said, is it just hashtag me personally, or is Honda getting a little pissy? Troubles around Hinch's exit from Aaron McLaren SP and subsequent search for ride in 2020, which so far far hasn't borne fruit. The apparent blocking to date of Andretti running Alonso at the 2020 Indy 500, and now Bourdais getting canned for uh, for driving a caddy in IMSA. Well, that's that's those are totally unrelated. Uh, he says, I love Honda, and I think they don't get the credit they deserve for all they do in IndyCar, but the last month or so has made me, um, has not made them very endearing. Making something out of nothing or are there larger issues in HPD land? I don't know if I'd say pissy, Andy. I'd say Honda's fairly well known, at least to me, for being a manufacturer that is pretty darn amazing and all in like real hardcore racers, real hardcore might say, well, aren't all racers hardcore? Eh, not necessarily, or maybe, but they're levels and they're in, they're all in. If there's a series where they can go race, they're going to go race. They love racing. Realize that Honda performance development an American creation by American Honda is American. 
but we cannot forget it is still the American arm of a Japanese brand. And while I do not profess to know as much about Japan or Japanese culture as I should, I do know some of the very straightforward strictures of honor and honor. (laughs) Act honorable, be honorable, treat one another in an honorable way. And some of the perceived slights, some of the real slights, some of the very negative comments from Mr. Alonzo regarding its Formula One engine while he was at McLaren. I would say that if he, if they were using Pruitt engines while we were newish to Formula One in this new formula, realize Honda has a vast history in F1, but they'd been out for a while, coming in in this new turbocharged hybrid era. New, having to get up to speed, realizing they were way behind all the other manufacturers that had been in for, what, three, four years by that point. Huge learning curve. Made a lot of mistakes, a lot of bad choices. Just the new motor development problem, blowing up, insufficient power. It was ugly. No argument. No no one could argue otherwise. But being brutally honest about it in print, over the radio, on TV, rubbing salt in the wound, not sure it did anything positive. Not sure it made folks that were already working a trillion hours to make better motors, more reliable motors, more everything motors. It's not as if saying highly critical things that are already known on public display as he's sitting in a lounge chair sunning himself in Brazil with a motor smoking next to him. Um, These things are obvious. It's calling the fat guy fat, the short guy short, the dumb guy dumb. These are known things. You saying them doesn't make them real. It's just overstating the obvious. And in this case, when it's something negative and highly critical in the early phase of a highly, highly pride and honor-driven manufacturer trying to get to the front, I can understand why Honda would say, yeah, this guy's dead to us. Really? And you guys are a, quote, partner? And this is how you're getting down? I don't think that's pissy, man. If those were Pruitt motors in the back, trust me. Good old Fred, not only would, would he be dead to me, He'd need armed security if I ever saw the guy. That's just because I'm kind of dumb and belligerent in that way. But, yeah, if those were my motors that he was saying that about, knowing everything that I've mentioned, coming back new, you know there's going to be a big learning curve, going to try our hardest, but we're inevitably going to blow up and have problems. And you're still wanting to pile on after that? I mean, that says less about... Alonzo's character than less about Honda's capabilities or abilities. If we look now at what Honda's doing in the back of a Red Bull chassis and Toro Rosso chassis, it's been great to see McLaren turn around with Renault engines, but you know what? 
<laughs> I bet they wish they had those Hondas right now. Nonetheless, you know, to me, Andy, this is something where you go, okay, dude, uh, you're getting the knives out when they aren't needed. Okay. All you're going to do is cause damage to the relationship. You saying the thing that everybody knows doesn't help. It's only going to hurt. If you thought this was some sort of public shaming you needed to do because the folks inside of Honda or the Pruitt engine manufacturer, whatever, were kidding themselves. Oh, no, man. What are you talking? We're great. This is the best. Couldn't be any better. Oh, yeah. We're doing all the right things. Wouldn't make any changes. Yeah. I think that'd be a scenario where you went out and said, hey, you know what? These things are hot garbage. You know, I wish they would take me seriously. Because they don't. And look where we are. But that isn't what he said. Just crazy, crazy critical. So I get it. I'd react the same way, Andy. I don't think it's pissy. I think it's just human. And I think, if anything, again, uh, it says less about Alonzo's character than anything. I do realize he's towards the end of his F1 career. Wanting to go out on a high. Wasn't getting it. I understand the frustration. But he's been around long enough to understand those words repeatedly uh, you're not going to get the desired effect you want from it so i just don't understand why he destabilized himself in perpetuity with honda uh, seb did not get canned for driving a caddy again as we spoke about earlier in the show uh, the seat went away and that opportunity in a cadillac is the thing that showed up um i wouldn't align anything to hinch's exit from Aaron McLaren SP necessarily with Honda directly as well. I mean, this is just, you know, the relationship that soured as a result of words said, public shaming, public embarrassment, you name it, from the McLaren team. Fernando's a part of that team, so it's kind of a blanket thing. I mean, I would say that, you know, that's, I wouldn't hang that on Hinch or Honda. Uh, the team decided to go this route, uh, to go into IndyCar, and did it with a team that was a Honda team. And Honda said, well, if that's the direction you're going, great, but it doesn't involve us. Uh, would also say that in terms of Hinch's exit, this has also been said about Seb's exit too, Andy. With a win or two on the board in 2019, maybe there'd be a different reaction. Not saying blaming anybody, oh, it's Hinch's fault, it's Seb's fault, no. But I think with a different outcome last season, who knows how their respective teams would have reacted to change and or adversity. Uh, let's see. Great question here from Bryson Frank. He says, what does this mean for other Honda drivers who also failed to score manufacturer points? So again, coming back to that story, not one that I wrote, uh, keep in mind that Honda helps certain teams in certain ways. Their choice, purely elective. So whether a driver who uses a Honda engine does or does not score manufacturer points, uh, it's not related to them getting anything, being anything. Um, for the most part, the vast majority, Bryson, uh, Honda-powered teams are paying for the pleasure. Let's go to... Vincent Anderson, love this question. I'm too old to remember the golden age of the 60s, 70s, of the 500. 
I'm a few years younger than you, but I don't remember uh, any 8500s better than the ones in the last 20 years. So why are so many people dying to bring back the apron? Keep in mind, it was still there through the early 90s as well. I think 91, maybe 92, 91, whatever it was. I, I apologize for forgetting the exact change when it was taken away. Really simple answer, Vincent. Options, opportunities with a wider track, with the apron now in place. You now have a wider racing surface to exploit in the corners. That creates options. That creates serious passing opportunities where now, not so, so much. I realize that there's some exceptions, of course, going around the high line and turn one on a restart and whatnot. But if you look at most passes, they are done entering a corner. Get it done on corner entry. Person being passed falls in behind them. What you don't see a lot of is passing at the apex. And so with the apron, you simply have a wider circuit, something where drivers are no longer pinned into a relatively narrow column to go through around the four corners where, yeah, you could kind of sort of try going too wide, but as you have more marbles build up coming off the tires and such, it just gets to be sketchy. So if you're running that high line quite often or trying to go too wide, you're going to get up in the marbles and you're going to stop racing because your car will no longer have all four of its corners or its engine or its hashtag front nose or something. With the apron, uh, and I think by and large the apron being turn one and two, really gives you a lot of passing options where you can try and go high, go low, Really not just be painted into getting into a funnel of follow the leader, which is by and large what we see take place. So you can set people up and try and dive in early to go under them and the two of you race through the corners or go high. It's options. Pretty awesome, man. That's why folks who've seen the apron in use are really wanting to see it come back like myself. Chris Ward says, Marshall, thanks for reading this. With all the changes that have happened since the checkered flag waved at Laguna Seca, have you seen a silly season that has been more bat crap crazy? No, I have not. The only one that I would say that rivals in recent times was 2008, and that really wasn't a crazy silly season. It was the unexpected collapse of Champ Car more or less right before the start of its season. And this hasty creation of a, quote, union slash merger, Tony George, IRL, IndyCar Series, I apologize, buying the assets of Champ Car, and many teams, not all, but many teams coming over. Still had the Long Beach Grand Prix listed as a champ car event, and that could not change, would not change. That was still held. That still gets forgotten that there was this final champ car race, one event in 2008 while the good old IndyCar series was in Japan, and Danica Patrick was winning her one and only race at Motegi. But yeah, I would say that was crazy. Had been rumors, all you know, all those things. Could it collapse? Could it whatever? But a lot of teams, a lot of everybody in the champ car side really preparing to go racing throughout 
the off season, the traditional silly season, than to have things just go shortly before the start of the season. That was, whoo, that was crazy. Uh, Greg Liver's Edge says, I took this picture. It's a photo he sent of Ed Carpenter and Connor Daly talking. At Laguna, what are the chances it's a common site in 2020? I would say that if you can find a bookmaker, some sort of online betting opportunity where you're, there are odds where you can actually make money instead of it just being a one-to-one ratio. I don't know a lot about betting, so that might have been a really dumb thing I said. Um, put money down. It, it's easy money. Easy money, Greg. Jim Kaiser, who's been sending in haiku for us, continues. Thank you, Jim. says, we take a moment to reflect on the topsy-turvy world that is IndyCar and his haiku for the week. Hinch, Seb, and Piggott are all out of the series. Who would have thunk it? Jim, you're priceless, buddy. For real. We've got haiku on the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A every week. It's it's just phenomenal. Uh, Duncan Idaho 11 says, can IndyCar install a... Graham Chapman type. Not Colin Chapman of Lotus, but Graham Chapman. That being Monty Python. A Graham Chapman-like figure to declare when silly silly season has gotten too silly. We could use a do-over and hashtag me personally, the official hashtag of the Marshall Pro Podcast. It's difficult to remain engaged with the series and its human stories when those we've followed for so long are being ejected and such. No argument, Duncan. No argument at all. Would just humbly suggest that as a writer, person who makes words on pages happen, I hate this stuff. I hate when a quality driver like a Spencer Piggott, who really seems like he's one season away from becoming something pretty darn good, gets legs cut out from under him or a Seb who deserves something better. If this by chance is his final was his final full-time IndyCar season. I hate those things. I wish everything was positive. The thing you mentioned though, about it's the human stories that really keeps you engaged. This is human as human as it gets, man. Um, I don't want to sound too California granola, uh, yoga, listening to my guru, whatever. But as my wife and I have been reminded now for more than a year by life, positive stuff is great. Wish it happened all the time. Wish that was just the norm. Everything is awesome. It's not, never is. Life is never all awesome. And so this past year plus, Shoot, it's been 14 months now. It's just been a reminder that, you know what? (laughs) The bad stuff is just as real life, just as human connection and emotion and human stories. The bad stuff is just as real, just as important. I don't know if I'd say just as good, but it can be in a lot of abstract ways. But it's just as human of a story as positive stuff. Rooting for the people that we love, the people who who got us into the series, made amazing memories for us, whatever. 
any struggles you might be having at home, any positive things. Someone got married, that's great, but then you found out your beloved uncle has some sort of you know medical problem. Again, I'm not trying to sound too whatever, but you know this is this is equal part of it, man. And not saying I like it. Not, I wish everything on the home front and everyone's home front was just free of problems, and you're just living candy canes and unicorns and just riding ufos with bigfoot and elvis and just everything's perfect i truly wish those things for everybody uh just know that having been through this many times in my hashtag me personally life opportunities come and go things that you don't deserve happen to you people that you love face real hardcore problems and i'm overstating the obvious every you all know this but this just the thing that comes to mind here, Duncan. Man, I wish I wasn't writing about this stuff. I wish Spencer and Seb and so many people were just driving race cars. I mean, heck, sports cars is ridiculous. The amount of amazing drivers who finished the 2019 season with full-time drives and are just on the unemployment line, got nothing, and you go, that guy? What? He's won championships, the biggest races in the world, factory guy for this and that and the other, and... He's like sniffing around, willing to take anything. What? It's twice as bad. Three times as bad in IMSA. I hate it. It's part of life, man. It's just part of the story. So while it doesn't ever feel truly normal, that's just the thing that I keep reminding myself. You know what it actually is. Never stops sucking, but it is a normal part of the story. This story arc it bends and weaves all over the place, and sometimes it weaves into suckitude. Uh, let's go to Windy Car. Curious on your thoughts. Does a driver-produced budget, paying driver, matter more or less, or is it irrelevant than in times over the past 20 years? What does it mean for talented drivers who don't have wealthy parents or know someone who runs a big company? How is it evolving within the sport? Great question. So we have a dynamic that has indeed changed a bit in recent years. And it's for the better. But it's also making things a lot harder. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if you look through the IndyCar entry list, you would find significant number of drivers who were just folks that brought money to pay for the opportunity that was their main qualification not saying that they didn't have some success here or there in the junior junior category but there was a significant number of folks that you went huh <laughs> how how'd you get in like there's on merit alone there's no reason for you to be here but clearly you either have family money or you run a business or you've got friends that do, however it is, you've come up with the money to pay someone to be in there, Lola or March or whatever it is, that's never going to have any success, but you're on the grid. There was a, a significant number of those folks, for sure. And it definitely drove down the overall talent from first to last on the grid countered though by the fact that we had freaking legends among legends 
towards the front. Unser's and Mario and AJ and Rutherford and Mears and Fittipaldi and just right. So it was this, we've got 9, 10, I don't know, maybe even 12 like heroes, legends, all-time folks that are just going to be remembered forever. And then there's kind of sort of the other half who are going to be on the whatever happened to story. Who? Oh, I remember that name. Great. I mean, there were some good drivers as well that were with smaller teams, didn't have great opportunities. You know, it could have been a Raul Boisel, could have been a Derek Daly. You know, there, there was a number of talented drivers who didn't get a, quote, break, a solid break in, in IndyCar. But by and large, there was a pretty big separation of great Hall of Famers and, eh, all right, well, they make up the rest of the grid. We've had the last couple of years. It's been phenomenal. <laughs> there are so few grid fillers. It is truly like, wow, this is an epic era for overall talent. What's become different, and it hasn't just happened the last couple of years, but what has become more normal, though, is if we look back in the day, 20 years, 30 years, you had that big block of legends, heroes, champions, you name it, running towards the front at all times. And then you had a lot that weren't particularly distinguished, but they kept teams alive. They brought money. Great. They they kept the business of IndyCar alive. What's been strange to see in this evolution of late is the amount of all-timers. Definitely smaller, Right. You can look at, you know, in recent years, Scott Dixon stands out. We know that Elio Castroneves is no longer full-time, but he was certainly part of that club. Uh, Montoya, right, was just here recently full-time. You look at a Ryan hunter Ray, right? I think he's going to be looked back on with great favor. I don't know if we're saying an all-time, but again, you know, uh, others will judge that. We expect a Rossi to be remembered as, you know, one of the phenomenal drivers of his era. Work down the list a little bit, and you say, okay, you know, Bourdais is one of them as well. If we're talking ovals, Ed Carpenter, for sure. We think Colton Herta is going to be remembered in 20 years as a holy cow transformational guy. You know, Graham Rahal's career has been a little rocky, but he's certainly demonstrated some greatness, uh, just not consistently. Uh, we look at Penske now, New Garden, two titles in three years. We think he's going to be remembered as an all-time great on the arc that he's currently charting. Uh, Pagano as well, we think that guy is going to be remembered. So again, you know, there, there's some, but it's not the, the bigger block we once had. Behind them, interestingly, a lot of drivers who are such higher level, such higher level of talent than, quote, back in the day, that group behind the, the greats of the era, if not all-time greats. Will Power as well, I've forgotten to mention. Of course, he's going to be you know remembered forever. Um, so what's interesting is we do have this cluster, big, bigger cluster, behind a smaller group of, of eras, top drivers and greats, Sato, we might throw in there as well. Who knows if he has more success. Uh, but anyways, we look at this big cluster of drivers where you go, huh, the talent is phenomenal. We have better drivers 
in IndyCar from start from first to last than we've ever had. Also have this really interesting dynamic where the amount of drivers who are bringing money probably higher, I think, than just about ever. And the amount of, you know, some of the names where you go, Tony Kanaan, yeah, Tony brings money, has brought money. Is it because he's a, quote, pay driver? No, not in that sense, but he has businesses that want to be associated with him, want to be involved with his racing. It's a good profit center for him. It's not nothing new here, not, not a surprise. But Tony Kanaan, one of them, right? Marco Andretti, he's a co-owner of his entry. Is he bringing his own money? No, but is he part of this matrix? Yeah. Uh, Piggott coming in, known that the family helped bring a little bit of money to help grease the wheels to get him into the sport. Ferrucci brings some money as well, right? Hinch in his early days, right? Brought sponsors. Look at, you know, Graham as well, knowing that he had to go out and find sponsors to really kickstart his career after it wavered. Hunter Ray, right, has had to try and make some things happen as well. Uh, I mean, you work on down the list and you go, you know, is Colton Herta, right? Is he someone out of his pocket? No, but through Steinbrenner, you know, his best bud and co-entrant who's come along to support him, you go, yeah, remove George Steinbrenner, the fourth, and is Colton Herta in IndyCar? Probably not. It's kind of a crazy thing, right? Dixon came into IndyCar with support from New Zealand. A lot of businessmen that came together basically bought shares in him to get him to where he is. You know, Rossi, you know, he has some small sponsors that I know of and has been with him for a while that come along. Now, whether those are, you know, contributing much to the team or is it more just to him? I can't say. And I'm not painting him as a pay driver. Just saying that it's, if anything, it's almost strange to find a driver in IndyCar who truly just does nothing other than get paid directly by the team. There's nothing else going on. I'm just a paid pro and badass. Zach Veach, we know, brought his sponsor to create IndyCar for him. Marcus Erickson, same thing. Mateus Lay, same thing. Ed Jones, Jack Harvey, Max Chilton, Connor Daly, Charlie Kimball. <laughs> right? You work down the list. There are so few drivers who are truly just straight up paid by their team have no associate sponsors or even just little small ones involved in helping to subsidize that ride. Or a person in Herta's case where, again, you subtract Steinbrenner. I don't know. Is he an Indy car? Is he an Indy lights? I don't know. It's a question, though. Um, you think about some of the sponsors. You know, we come back to Hunter Ray and you look at DHL. Man, that guy is you know, doing all kinds of stuff to make sure they are happy and in and committed. Does that mean, you know, he's a quote pay driver? No, not at all. But the, the salad days where IndyCar drivers would just get big checks and have big old giant million dollar motor homes and fly private jets all the time and have three houses and all kinds of play toys and whatever. It's a couple not many. There's a couple that kind of fall into that zone, but not many. It's because so many of the drivers 
ones that you'd be really surprised. You go, wow, add them all up. And it is the majority of the drivers on the grid are responsible for paying for their seat in full, in part, or even to a tiny amount. But in some way, the majority of the drivers on the grid today are actually responsible for their ability to drive it from a financial standpoint. It's that's the big change. So what I would say to close on this question real quick, Wendy Carr is for this to change for this to go away and no longer be the norm. IndyCar will need to change its business model. Something that Michael Shank discussed here on the podcast last week. Costs need to come down. Michael Andretti mentioned it as well. We need to take at least a million dollars off of the annual budget just across the board. Dollars need to come down so that teams are not so strapped for money that bringing money is almost the expected prerequisite for anyone coming into the series so that the amount of money needed to compete is something that teams through sponsors through the leader circle subsidy hopefully that will go up and significantly with roger penske as a team owner they can run teams and instead not have to award seats to the highest bidder or the best business person slash driver but actual say hey your talent we want to go forward let's do something um that's a concern that is a significant concern let's go to so we kind of sort of start to wind down a little bit let's go to Stephen johns would say that big thing here talking about this driver funding side Stephen says, imagine RP, Penske, allocates additional funds to full-time drivers on the provision that during the week in the off-season, those drivers work as interns for the series and Speedway in jobs decided according to their talents and abilities. Who would you put in what job? Who is IndyCar groundskeeper, head janitor, marketing guru, and technical advisor, etc.? All right, so in the interest of getting through more questions I'm probably going to have to go a little bit short on this one. This could genuinely be a four-hour episode. And I'm actually thinking now, I'm thinking I might. Let me look at where we're at on time. Yeah, we're coming up on two hours. I'm thinking what I might do. thinking I might split into two episodes because I'm looking here and realizing that there's a lot of questions to go. So I think what I'm going to do, Stephen, is actually closing your question for part one. And then we're going to get into part two here maybe tomorrow. Yeah, hopefully tomorrow, Wednesday. I'll uh, try and knock out the rest here. And maybe I'll post it a little later in the week. Give you something else to help drown out the in-laws and whatnot on Thanksgiving. Um, okay, you're wanting to assign IndyCar drivers to their kind of intern some sort of something, right? Interns at the Speedway jobs based on their talents and abilities. Oh, this is going to be, oh, this is going to be brutal. 
All right. So I would say human resources. I think Alexander Rossi is going to be the head of human resources. Why? Well, it's a very, very nuanced procedural policy adherence kind of thing, right? It's also, it's not just who's acting right, who's acting wrong. It's, you know, liaison to a lot of things. You know, folks could have to go on medical leave, might need to know that, uh, you know, uh, policy 1234-A subset 9 says that after six weeks, uh, you must transfer from this kind of leave to that kind of, like, Rossi's OCD really strikes me as the person that you want in human resources. Not managing the whole thing, that get a little taxing, micromanaging everybody and, you know, constantly straightening everything on everybody's desk all the time. But I like Rossi in kind of a human resources, you know, you got a question, anything, you call him, he knows, doesn't even have to look it up, just knows. Oh, well, you need to flip to uh, page uh, 43 in the employee handbook. Um, Look down number seven. That's the answer to your question there. Click, Hank, just right. Real efficient there. Might have thought of him in the IT department, but eh, it's a little on the nose. So we're going to go. He's coming out of his shell more and more. So I like the HR a little more interactional, interaction-y. I like that for sure. I love the question about the groundskeeper. Who, if there was any any kind of wildlife management, first of all, I think that'd be Hunter Ray. Especially, I don't know, there's not a lot of fish there, but, you know, Hunter Ray's outdoors man and likes eating animals, so I think we'd have to put him in charge there somehow. Birds, for sure. Um, just got to make sure he doesn't, you know. We'll make sure that, He doesn't bring his barbecue to work, okay? But he actually seems like he interacts with nature on the animal side. Maybe more fish-based, but nonetheless, seems like the right guy to put there. Who would we want for the groundskeeper? That's my favorite question of all uh, among all the different roles here. Huh. I I might go with Hinch on that one. For nothing other than the guy's beard and hair is almost always immaculate. I can just see him getting down with, you know, a little fingernail file, something just to get the little blades of grass right just at the edge of the track. And, you know, just I can really see him taking great care. If you look at the man's personal grooming habits since... Uh, he did make a decision here to let the world see uh, his manicuring, pedicuring, and, and hair-curing practices um, by dropping his his pants and shorts and everything else. I think Hinch might be the guy. I, I really do. And I'm going to give him a big thumbs up on that front. Uh, let's see. What other jobs... Do we security, right? We need a head of security. Who? Who? Oh, man, that might be Rossi as well. I mean, this again, the guy's kind of strict mindset, I think, in that area. But no, we can't can't have him do every job. So see, what do we need with head of security? Uh, We need someone that, again, very rules oriented, 
strong sense of fair play. Doesn't care. DGAF. Don't give a bleep. Right? That's Bourdais, isn't it? Right? That guy will get in anybody's face. I mean, he doesn't care. I mean, look, that man's sense of right and wrong is stronger than probably any driver I've ever met. Fair play, foul play, you name it. Um, Yeah. Could you imagine Seb in a yellow shirt and a whistle and possibly a bullhorn just accosting people? Get away from the fence. No, you can't park there. Oh, man. That'd be the best. NBC would dedicate a 24-hour film crew. Sebastian Bourdais, IMS cop, right? Yellow shirt cop. Oh, I love it. That That is, now that is, that's, that's something we need to see happen. Uh, let's see. We're talking about other talents and abilities. Hmm. Who would we put in what job? We keep in mind there's some other ones, right? Uh, PR, right? Human resources. Well, we already got the human resources. PR, marketing, communications. Who would we put in that role? You know, I also love sitting here realizing that as I try and come up with this, you've probably already had one jump right out and are saying, Pruitt, Jesus, man, why aren't you picking so-and-so? Who's ahead of communications? Not Hinch. Right? I mean, he's already got a job. We know that he, he is a man destined to make grass look great. Um, power, right? It's got to be power. I mean, he, he's, although he's not, he looks, he just comes across as semi drunk. He's the guy that you would want to be coming up with great ideas. He's the one, he's very creative. That's maybe one of the, the, well, you might not know this because it's not something the IndyCar series has had a lot of for quite a while, but that's truly creative people on the PR and marketing side coming up with great stories, great angles, right? Power is so creative. His mind is just, it's untethered from normalcy and reality and just all kinds of things. Um, I'm half convinced if he's not told to eat, he'd forget, um, we just pray that butterflies do not decide to fly around him because he'll just wander off and chase them and stare up into the sky. And we make sure sure that he has sunglasses yet again, just out of fear. He'll just look up and see the sun seemingly forgetting it existed and just stare at it till his eyes burn out of his head. It's that kind of thing where you go, Hey power need a quote about something who better, right? Um, the C word's going to be in there for sure. The C word that rhymes with hunt. Um, right? Yeah. Powers are our head of communications for sure. And you might not always understand what he talks about. It's actually a really good skill to have when you don't want, really don't want to answer something, a tough question, something nonsensical and a fun accent. I think, I think Will Powers, our guy right there. Who would be an intern like president, right? You know, or CEO. Who's going to be drafting right behind a Mark Miles or Jay Fry? Is there someone with an IndyCar that we think has that kind of mental capability and that just stature carry themselves in such a way? Huh. Who might that be? 
Part of me thinks New Garden, but not really. It's got the looks, but meh. Bit of a dummy. I really hope he hears that. I just would love to get the text. He's really smart, actually, but it's kind of fun saying he isn't. Um, who? Who? <sighs> All right. I think I have one. I think Zach Veach. I know size-wise, right? We need to kind of get a little little booster on the on the on the podium there the some sort of something that makes him so he can stand over uh, so folks can see him when he's speaking into the microphone but he's very smart and very organized and very goal oriented uh, he is among the most impressive go-getters he's someone that faced with a problem i'm confident he would solve it he's a coalition builder very likable young man, many friends, someone that I believe just about everybody in the series looks forward to seeing. I don't, but I hear this from others. I think he, he might actually, maybe a little bit of a surprise, but he strikes me as someone that you drop him in that role. I could see him as intern, IndyCar president, uh, CEO. Might get fired. He might be horrible at it, but that's at least my suspicion how about foreign affairs, right? We need a foreign affairs person. I mean, do we go to a foreign IndyCar driver for that? Do we go to an American IndyCar driver for that? I think we go American. We go Charlie Kimball, right? If we learned 10 years from now that Charlie Kimball became the ambassador to Belgium, would that surprise you? It wouldn't surprise me. Australia... South Korea. I could see Charlie as an ambassador. I really could. He's a very sharp cat. Lived a lot of life. Extremely self-assured. I could see him kind of a foreign affairs capacity. I know IndyCar doesn't have that role, but we're just making this crap up, right? Um, technical advisor, right? Who would be? Who would stand in? Maybe be a intern leading IndyCar's engineering group technical group I mean, do we automatically go to jerry hildebrand jerry hilderhair who only does one race a year of late eh, maybe not that might be uh, playing against him but who else who's kind of the tech leader after him i don't think pagina would want to right it's a little bit lazy if it's not racing or eating or cooking yeah doing social media stuff in his driver's suit and his helmet. And I'm not, not so sure he'd want to be that guy. Who who would who would we drop into that role? It's kind of funny, too, because what I'm... The category or the criteria I'm using is whether drivers are at all good in terms of providing chassis feedback, and it's kind of sad because not a lot are jumping out. I think I might need to go dual purpose here and throw Rossi in as well. So head of HR intern... And also head of IndyCar Engineering intern. He's really smart that way. Really, really smart. Maybe his race engineer, Jeremy Millis, could help. Uh, maybe Jeremy could moonlight as an intern on the HR side and just truly destroy things because that's in his nature. Uh, what other jobs? Well, I'm trying to think. One or two more to close. Where do we place these decrepit folks that RP's wanting to fund? during the off season 
head janitor. Huh. <laughs> Who do we place as the head? Ja- oh, I know. I know that. Oh, this is. Yeah. That is without a doubt. That's Graham Rahal. Because it would piss him off so much. Because he wouldn't understand why he was placed in that role. And he doesn't deserve it, right? There's no logical reason. But this is the kind of thing that would befuddle Graham and just piss him off to no end. And admittedly, that's kind of half the fun, right? So there's no reason for him to be in that role. But placing him in that role would actually just be unintentional comedy galore. And he'd be really mad and and hate whomever made that decision. Don't tell me it was me. But yeah, that would definitely be Graham. Um, what else? Is there another question? Oh, what about... What about IMS president in training, right? I mean, Doug Bowles, good man, right? But uh, maybe he needs to groom a successor among the IndyCar ranks. Wouldn't say his stepson, Connor Daly, getting a little bit on the nose. But let's close on that. Who would we draft into head IMS as an intern? Who? I know who I think would like to do the job and maybe he might actually be perfect. He and Doug have a lot of, of similar personality traits. They're, they're natural showmen. They have never met a camera. They do not like, they say some big and boisterous and funny things at times. And knowing that he recently moved to Indianapolis, I would say Tony Kanon, TK, right? My fear here is he would actually move from being intern to actual IMS CEO because I think once he was in that role as an intern, folks would just love him too much and want to keep him around. I don't know if he knows a thing about running a business or a motor racing circuit or any of that, but I, could you imagine Tony giving all the quotes? Tony showing up for whatever bake sales and unveilings and just whatever. Could you imagine TK being in that role? Ah, it'd be the most fun. Uh, He'd probably never be home, so Lauren would get really mad. But I love the idea of TK as intern, IMS, president, knowing that the guy would be converted to probably just straight-up president very, very soon. All right, I am going to say farewell We have crossed over the two-hour threshold here. You do have probably another two hours of questions. I don't want to make this a four-hour episode, but I also do not want to ignore the fact that you all sent in a lot of questions during this really crazy off-season that has yet to slow down. I say this not wanting to sound like I am complaining, but I genuinely cannot wait for things to slow down and get boring and actually say, you know, maybe I'll write a story about something from the 2019 season instead of all the crap that keeps blowing up, getting sold and bought, going sideways, handshake deals, turn to nothing, rides being bought, money going away, whatever. Like you, I do look forward to things slowing down as quickly as possible, but it hasn't happened yet as evidenced by 
the insane amount of questions you all sent in. Uh, here, just a little note. When Roger Penske bought the 500, <laughs> bought Indy and bought IndyCar, I think all of your questions in that biggest news and in IndyCar in my lifetime type thing, the word count on your questions pasted into Word document, I seem to recall was about 2,800 words. This week, 2,797. Uh, six pages. And so with Stephen's question here uh, about interns and whatnot, and I love that one, Stephen, by the way, that just got us through page three. So that's why we're going to split this into two parts, and I'll get the second part done tomorrow. And I hope you enjoy it, and I'm going to get this posted here ASAP, and hopefully you can use it while driving wherever, and or to just ignore the people who deserve being ignored. And don't be surprised if my wife downloads this and puts it on during Thanksgiving so she doesn't have to listen to my monkey ass. All right, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, our week in IndyCar listener Q&A, what's going to be a part one of a two-parter, brought to you by the Justice Brothers, the truly awesome automotive chemicals and lubricants created by our pals in Southern California, the Justice family, Cooper Tires, Awesome Cooper tires, the tires that make the road to Indy what they are. TorontoMotorsports.com. Definitely send in that DM. Send in your email address. Zachary Burcham will get you sorted out with some sort of free swag. And then also Bell Racing Helmets USA. They keep your noggin safe in a motor racing vehicle. Who could ask for more? All right. Talk to you in part two if you're crazy enough to listen here very soon.